Would you call yourself a brave person? I guess it depends on what's at stake. Weighing up the risk versus the reward. Every summer there are stories of parents risking their lives swimming into dangerous surf to rescue their kids. I think many of us who are parents would probably do the same thing for our children. But would you do it for a hat that blew out into the sea or, or a football that got kicked out into the sea? I reckon most of us probably wouldn't. Uh, or suppose you saw a $5 note in the middle of, uh, uh, of uh, the, the, the road there. Would you, you know, the cars are roaring past, would, would you risk it for $5? What about $20? Or $100? Would you risk running out into the middle of the road for the sake of $100? I think for most of us, the amount of courage we show depends on what will be gained. Uh, temporary benefits, things of little importance, well, they might inspire a little bit of bravery. It's things of great importance, things of eternal significance we would be really brave for. Uh, it's the type of bravery we're seeing in the news this week from everyday Ukrainians standing up to defend their country against Russia. And it's the same bravery I think we see from Jesus. Here in the second half of chapter 10, his eyes are on Jerusalem, he has a single-minded determination, even though he knows torture and death awaits him. Did you notice the start of our passage, verse 32? They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. I reckon there are two sorts of courage. There's the impulsive, spur-of-the-moment courage. You know, someone sees a car crash, they see the victim trapped inside the car, petrol, you know, petrol's leaking out the back, uh, and they, they instinctively just rush in and rescue someone. There's not enough time to think about it. Perhaps if they did have time to think about it, they wouldn't do it. But then there's a different sort of courage, the courage of someone who sees something terrible approaching uh, from a distance into the future. There's plenty of time to turn back, to talk yourself out of it, to find some other way, but this person keeps walking towards it, steadfast and sure. I think that takes a much greater courage to do that sort of uh, thing. That's the courage Jesus is showing here, isn't it? He, he knew what was coming. He'd known for years. He'd been telling his disciples for weeks. He was heading to his death. But he keeps walking towards Jerusalem, each step taking him closer. And not reluctantly either. He's leading the way. Why? What motivates that courage? Well, he's weighing up the risk versus the reward. The reward is he's winning salvation for mankind. Down in verse 45, sort of towards the end of our passage, this is Jesus' mission statement. You know, some people think churches shouldn't have mission statements, it's just newfangled rubbish, but Jesus had a mission statement. Have a look at this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Jesus' mission. One life in place of many. The reward far outweighs the risk. And so Jesus faces death and marches to Jerusalem. How brave are you? Especially to do with the people you love coming to know Jesus. 
Are you brave enough to risk the awkward conversation? To invite them to church or an evangelistic course? Are you brave enough to risk rejection, ridicule, losing a friendship? That's about the limit of it in Australia, but you know our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, they're risking far more, aren't they? They're risking persecution, punishment, prison. Does the reality of God's judgment and hell make a difference in how you live, in the choices you make, in the courage you display, in how you treat people who don't yet know Jesus, in your choices, your priorities? Back at the end of chapter 9, Jesus said that you should do almost anything to avoid hell. For yourself, for others. Chapter 9, verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Sure, it's exaggeration, it's metaphor, but he's still describing taking courageous decisions because there is so much at stake. Your eternal destiny, the eternal destiny of little ones, of people you know, is at stake. Show some courage. Well, the disciples, they're astonished. Jesus is heading for Jerusalem. That's the centre of the danger. And so verse 33, Jesus tells them for the third time, chapter 8, verse 30-something, chapter 9, verse 30-something, once again, chapter 10, verse 30-something, for the third time, where they're going and why. It's the most thorough account yet. And this is the first time the Gentiles are mentioned. Verse 33, we're going to Jerusalem, he said, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he'll rise. That's it. Jesus knows all the gory details but he still keeps walking. The disciples can't understand it. They may not know everything but they know enough. Ever since chapter 3 verse 6 we've known that the Pharisees and the Herodians, the religious and the political powers are plotting to kill Jesus. And Jerusalem is where they're all based. So for the disciples, it just makes no sense to, to keep heading to Jerusalem. But that's what Jesus does. And he's not picking a quiet time either. He's not picking the low season. He's going there for Passover. There's no way he can avoid uh, detection. No wonder they're astonished and afraid. Jesus courageously heads to death for you what have you done for him? Firstly, have you accepted his gift, his courageous gift of life and forgiveness? Have you offered him your life when he gave his for you? Maybe you're holding out because you think, well, your life's not at a good place and you're not in the right position in life and you've got things you want to achieve. But it's not about you. Life is not about you. It's, you are not the centre of the world. Jesus is the centre of the world. It's about him. His life given for you, will you give your life for him? What will you set your eyes on for him? He set his eyes on Jerusalem for you. What is there in your life that you are avoiding because of fear? 
Maybe you're a father, a husband, and you know you should be a better leader in your family, in Christian things. Show some courage. Maybe there's a work colleague or a close relative you need to share Jesus with. You love them, but you're scared. You're scared what might, of what might happen to the relationship if you do and they reject you. Show some courage. Or maybe there's a sin you've been cherishing, an attitude. No one else knows about it, but it's comforting and comfortable. You know you need to cut it off. Show some courage. Or maybe God is, has been telling you in different ways for a while that you need to do something different. You need a whole new challenge, a new area of service or giving or training. But you're scared. You're not sure if it'll work out. You're not sure if you can trust God. You're comfortable. Show some courage. Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem and death for you. What will you set your eyes on for him? Well, the other disciples uh, have recognised the theme of death, but verse verse 35, James and John, they notice something different. Uh, Their eyes are on glory. Perhaps... As Cheryl mentioned, they were continuing the idea, their, their argument from earlier. They didn't want to let it go. You know, they're dogs with a bone. Uh, perhaps it's, it's Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. And James and John remember how in Daniel 7 uh, it describes the Son of Man who approaches God, who approaches the Ancient of Days and receives authority and glory and sovereign power. And that all peoples, nations and languages will worship him. Perhaps James and John recognise that and they say, we want some of that. If Jesus is the goal, we want the silver and the bronze. They've followed him everywhere. They want to make sure it's going to pay off. Verse 35, teacher, they asked, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You just laugh at that, don't you? Whatever we ask, blank check, just do it. What do you want me to do for you? Asked Jesus. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now we're quick to laugh, aren't we? We're quick to criticise. We wonder how they can be so blind and selfish, self-absorbed. But despite their faults, they trust Jesus, don't they? They'd left everything to follow him. And now, three years later, they're beginning to catch a vision of what what he might do. He really is the Christ. He really is going to bring in God's kingdom. And so they, uh, so what they're asking is that they want a seat uh, at that, in the kingdom. It's really a sign of their confidence. They've got some idea about the destination, but just no idea about how to get there. They know that there's victory at the end, but they don't realise it's got to go through the valley of suffering. And Jesus says, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with? He's talking about his suffering and death. Uh, The cup, it's it's an image of suffering, the cup of suffering. Uh, As the Old Testament prophets used it, like uh, Isaiah 51, it was a symbol of God's judgement on the nation of Israel. Foreign nations were his instrument to bring judgement. 
and to be, um, to be baptised with uh, the, the idea of baptism here uh, is about being immersed and engulfed in all of that pain and rejection of God's judgement. Jesus says, can you follow after me? You want to sit with me at the end, but can you follow me to get there? And they say, sure, we can handle whatever. And Jesus says, well, you actually will go through the same thing as me. You'll drink the cup, you'll be baptised with the baptism of suffering. But then he says, it's not up to me to decide who gets to sit in those two spots. That's, that's my father's job. But verse 41, the plot thickens. It's not just James and John who misunderstand. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant. And I wonder if this supports Cheryl's idea that they're continuing the argument from the previous chapter. Now, they could be indignant because uh, they correctly understand Jesus' mission and they want to correct James and John's theology, but I don't think so. Uh, what Jesus, based on what Jesus goes on to say to the whole group, they're all as blind as one another. They all want to be first. And they're just annoyed that James and John got in before they did, in asking. They all have eyes on glory rather than suffering. Jesus says, verse 42, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now every other human organisation expects those who are led to serve the leader. That's just natural. But in God's kingdom it's upside down. If you want to be great, notice that's actually a good thing to want to be great. If you want to be great, you actually achieve greatness in a different way to the world. Suffering and service is how Jesus is glorified and that's exactly the same for his followers as well. Ambition is not a bad thing. James and John were ambitious but it has to be ambition uh, to lead to be first achieved in the right way. And that means if you want ambition to be... uh, ambition of the kingdom, kingdom ambition is about serving. You have to be ambitious to serve. You have to have a strong desire to be last. You have to have a passion to consider everybody else before yourself. Uh, We've we've got uh, people in business who who interview and are interviewed for jobs and, you know, ambition is, it's a a thing that you want to see in your employees. It's It's a thing you want to show if you're being interviewed. I'm ambitious. But to be ambitious for the kingdom, to be first in the kingdom, is about having a passion to be last. No, 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 before you, uh, wouldn't that be great if if no one was first and and we all just kept saying to one another as we queued up for morning tea, it would be slightly frustrating for the coffee makers. They'd have 20 coffees lined up because no one wants to take one. But that's what we should all be doing, isn't it? We should be ambitious to be last. Have you ever wondered who will be first in God's kingdom? Who will the Father give these two good seats to? I wonder when eternity begins and us from, you know, up towards the back, the cheap seats, and we look up there at the places of honour, 
to those who've received the recognition and the responsibility and the good seats, will we recognise them? Will they be those who've received honour here on earth? There might be a few, but I reckon most of those who will be first in God's kingdom are those who are last at the moment. Jesus says it'll be those like little children. It'll be those whose work we don't recognise. Those who've laboured a lifetime with no earthly recognition at all. Those who don't aspire to power on earth, who aren't successful, who've never been on TV or published a book or run a mega church. It'll be those with a godly ambition, an ambition to be last, who are content and prayerful and humble and who serve, who love the Lord, whose eyes are fixed on him, whether anybody else notices or not. That's what it takes to be first in the kingdom. Have you got an ambition to be that? Few of us are openly grand or proud of our achievements. We're self-aware enough not to at least make it obvious that we're proud. But we do like to be noticed, don't we? We like to be appreciated and recognised. If you do a job around here in the church, if nobody noticed that you did it or said anything about what you achieved for a whole year, would you still be happy to do it? In some ways, leading services and being up the front here, it's easy because people notice. It's much harder year in and year out to, do, to keep doing one of those jobs that nobody notices. But that's the Christian life, to be satisfied in living for the approval of Jesus and nobody else. To be last. To work for an audience of one. That's the way to become great in the kingdom. Well, that's the disciples. In lots of ways, they're blind to the way of the kingdom. They're blind to who Jesus is and how he's going to get to glory. Their eyes are on glory. But from verse 46, we get a comparison with the blind Bartimaeus. Yes, his physical eyes don't work, but his spiritual eyes are fixed on Jesus. He's still heading for Jerusalem. He's made it as far as Jericho. As they leave the city gates, there's, we're introduced to Bartimaeus. Mark goes to the trouble of telling us his name means son of Timaeus, Bar Timaeus. Uh, he hears the crowd getting closer, the, the, the rumble of shuffling feet. He can feel the vibrations. He can hear the hum of excited voices, the pitch and the volume is raised. He hears the name of Jesus mentioned. And so verse, verse 47, he begins to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everyone around him tells him to be quiet, but he keeps yelling, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, the Messiah, David's son, travelling along the road back to David's city, to Jerusalem. Bartimaeus can't see him, but he's seen him. Bartimaeus knows that the prophet Isaiah said that when the Messiah came, he would open the eyes of the blind. And that's what he wants. And I reckon Mark puts these two episodes together because he wants us to compare the blindness of James and John with the vision of Bartimaeus. He deliberately paints in his description ways that we're meant to draw the comparison. How are James and John described? 
Sons of Zebedee. We haven't had that uh, yet. Sons of Zebedee. How is this man described? A son of Timaeus. And each of them have an opinion about Jesus who is called the son of David. And did you notice uh, Jesus questioned to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? That should send warning, uh, you know, bells ringing in our head because it's exactly word for word what he said to James and John back in verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? Two different visions of Jesus, two different requests. James and John want to be first. Bartimaeus wants to see. And because he recognises Jesus, because of his faith, Jesus grants him the request. He can see again. What does he do? Well, previously healed people would go home and tell everybody they saw and then there'd be a riot and Jesus says, be quiet, be quiet. But he doesn't do that here. What does Bartimaeus do? He follows Jesus along the road. He's following, literally, in the footsteps of Jesus. And that's what we're to do as well. Not literally, but we're to follow Jesus. To imitate, to trust, to love, to obey. It's interesting, the Greek word for road is hodos, which can mean a literal road, but it can also mean a way, a a direction to head in. And in fact, that word hodos, it came to be the way that Christian life was described. Uh, The book of Acts, in multiple places, uh, says things like this. Acts chapter 9, verse 2, Saul is heading for Damascus and he's looking for any who belonged to the way. Chapter 9, verse 2. He's looking for Christians. He's looking for people who are following on the way of Jesus. Is that you? Are you a follower of the way? Do you belong to the way? Are you following the one who courageously gave his life for you? Are you courageously giving up your life for others, putting yourself last? Are you ambitious to be great in the kingdom? Are you eager to be a servant? Are you giving up glory and approval and recognition? Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem and death for you. What will you set your eyes on for him? He's leading the way. Will you follow? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see Jesus, to trust him and to follow him. Amen.